good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude. Our text this morning is Jude 8 through 10. Lord willing, it might just be 8. We'll do 9 and 10 next week. But Jude 8 through 10 is, is the aim this morning. If you find that, I would invite you to stand in honor of God's Word as we read it together. Well, our text this morning is Jude 8 through 10. I do want to give us a little context, and so we'll start reading in verse 3. We believe that these words were given by inspiration of God and are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Jude 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Let's pray together. Lord, whom have we in heaven but you? To whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Therefore, we come now to your word, seeking these words of eternal life. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind to understand, a heart to believe, and a spirit to obey. Guide us with your counsel, O Lord. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's in the name of Jesus I pray, amen. You can be seated. Our text this morning has a specific subject, and I, I want to make sure that we understand that subject before we dive off into our text, because Jude has a certain group of people in mind when he writes these things. And so if you look at our text in verse 8, it says, yet in like manner, these people also. Well, who are these people? We've spent some time in the book of Jude, and so it's been a few weeks since we talked about verse 4. But if you look back at verse 4, Jude writes, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Jude says in verse 8, yet in like manner, these people also, he's, he's going back and picking up what he said in verse 4 about these people, these people who have crept into the body, who have, who have shown themselves to be ungodly, people who pervert the grace of God, people who deny Jesus Christ as Lord. He says, these are the people who have also done these things that we're about to see in verses 8 through 10. These certain people have crept in and in their ungodliness, they have perverted the grace of God. And we've talked about how they have, they've taken the grace of God and twisted it into all manner of licentiousness and ungodliness. And they've denied the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. The problem is, 
when someone walks in this building and is a false teacher, or you might say a false professor or an opponent or an intruder, someone who, who is these certain people, the problem is they don't come in with a sign on them that says, warning, I'm a false teacher. They don't come in and say, listen, guys, I got some false doctrine that I would like to share with you. They don't come in and, and warn you from the beginning that what they're about to say is outside of orthodoxy or is a twisting of the gospel, or is a perverting of the grace of Jesus Christ, or is a denial of Jesus Christ's lordship. They don't come in telling you that. And so Jude gives us, in verses 8 through 10, he gives us marks of these false teachers. He gives us some marks of what these men and women are like. And you might hear me use the word false teacher. I might use the word false professor. I might use the word intruder, because the reality is that is what they are. That we might be confused to say, well, it's only people who are setting themselves up as leaders in the congregation or people who are setting themselves up as teachers that we have to worry about. And, and the reality is that's not true because Jude says they have crept in. And this, this false teaching doesn't just happen from a pulpit or from a podium. It happens across the dinner table. And it happens in text messages, and it happens in the little ways, in the little eroding of the gospel of Jesus, the, just the little twists of the grace of Jesus Christ. And so I want to communicate to you this morning seven marks of these false teachers that Jude gives us. Seven marks of these false teachers. And so if you're taking notes or you want a, a roadmap to follow, our first mark of false teachers is that they resist the warnings of God. False teachers resist the warnings of God. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 begins with this word, yet. And this word is in and of itself an indictment. If you remember last week, we looked at verses 5 through 7, and I'll read it one more time just, just as a reminder. Verse 5 says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And what does he say? Yet these people in like manner also. False teachers resist the warnings of God. All of these occasions from chapter or from verses five through seven serve as reminders, serve as warnings of God's faithfulness to justly judge wickedness. As we heard last week, all of all of these are just reminders, reminders that God is faithful to judge wickedness, to justly judge wickedness, that there will not be a sin on the last day that is unaccounted for. The unbelief of Israel, the pride of these fallen angels, the sexual immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah, the, all of these things serve as reminders of God's faithfulness to judge wickedness. And yet, and yet, he says in verse 8, these false teachers continue in their folly and deception, even though they know the facts. All of these examples are Old Testament examples. It's not as if we now in reading Jude in, in 2023 have some, some deeper insight into, into what it means to, for sexual immorality to be judged or for what it means for unbelief to be judged or for what it means for these angels and their pride to be judged. He says they know these things to be true and yet they continue in their folly and deception. It reminds me of Romans chapter 1. Verses 28 through 32, where Paul says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Listen to what he says in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. 
Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. All of these warnings have existed in in reality. And Jude says, yet in like manner, these people continue in their folly and in their deception. That their their sin, he says, yet in like manner, that their sin is similar to the gross sins that God judged in verses 5 through 7. Literally means in the same way, similarly, equally. That they, they see these warnings and they know these warnings to be true, and yet they continue in much the same type of sin as false teachers in the church. And it reminds me of in, in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen has, has just given this wonderful defense of the gospel. And he's basically told all of these people that it's their fathers who, who killed the prophets. And then they're responsible for killing Jesus. And that in their sin, in their sin they, will, they will suffer forever. And what do the people say? What do they do? It says in Acts chapter 7 that they ground their teeth at him. And they stopped their ears and they rushed at him. These men in like manner... And women, these false teachers continue in their folly and deception, resisting the warnings of God, even though they know what is true. And let me just apply this for a moment. Note the deceitfulness of sin. These people, knowing of the faithful judgment of God, continue to live in their unrighteousness, even though they know what is promised. Hebrews 3 warns about this in verses 12 through 13. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. James 1 speaks of how sin can be deceiving when he says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. In their folly, these people, he says, in like manner to what we have seen in verses 5 through 7, live a life resisting the warnings of God. Ignoring the truth of God's faithfulness. Ignoring the, the known end of sin and deception, knowing the the known end of destruction that belongs to those who die in their sins, they they continue in this hardened state of sin, of false teaching. And you can imagine, right? I mean, we sit here every week and hear the glories of the gospel, and you can imagine these people who are sitting among the church, and yet they're living as false teachers, and they hear week after week after week of the, of the realities of sin and the realities of the gospel, and, and in the, the hardness of their hearts and the deceitfulness of sin, they've hardened themselves against the truth. Spurgeon said, one of the greatest curses that can happen to a man is for him to do wrong with impunity. He will do it again and again and again, and he will proceed from bad to worse. False teachers first resist the warnings of God. If you're taking notes, second, not only do they resist the warnings of God, but false teachers also, second, rely on a subjective authority. Rely on a subjective authority. If you look at verse 8, it says, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their Dreams. The, the, the original language just calls them dreaming, the dreaming ones. He says that they are dreamers, that they're dreaming. And you look at this text, and at first you might look and say, well, does this mean that they're just sleepy? Does it mean that they're lethargic? Like, are they just kind of, they're just tired and they're missing some of the, the truth? Or does it mean that they're just ignorant, that they're hypnotized? I think we do see in in the beginning of verse 8 when we see where it says, yet in like manner, we understand that these people, because of their sin, they are further and further hardened. And yes, they might be hypnotized by the power of their sin, but in their sin, they continually go further and further and further. And what I do believe that Jude is saying about these people is not that they're merely sleepy or lethargic, not that they're ignorant or hypnotized, and not that they just have great plans. When we think of the word dreamer today, we think of someone who just has a lot of schemes and plans, and I don't think that that's the reality. I think what they're doing is preying on a a Jewish and a first century understanding that people could interpret dreams. And so what they're doing 
is not merely acting like sleepers or acting lethargic or ignorant or hypnotized. I think when he says that they are relying on their dreams, that they're dreaming ones, he's saying that they're claiming prophetic dreams to defend their sinfulness. They're saying, yes, I know what the Scripture says, but I've had a vision from the Lord. I've had a, I've had a, a revelation. What do the Scriptures say about men like this? Isaiah 56 says, All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest, his watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark. Dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They have never have enough, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure, that these men, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber, are shepherds who have no understanding, that they live for their own gain. Deuteronomy 13, 1-5 tells the people of Israel what to do with a man like this. It says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Verse 5, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so you shall purge the evil from your midst. You can imagine the ridiculous nature of this. To, to see a man, a prophet, a dreamer of dreams, who says to you, here, see, my dream came true. Let's go after other gods and worship them. You mean go after another god when literally the god who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery is the other option? And he says, yes, let's go after other gods. Imagine the folly of relying on such subjective authority to say, yes, I know what the truth says, but I had a dream. And, it, and it, it, it opened the whole world to me. What does the Lord say to do? He says, purge the evil from your midst. And then finally, Jeremiah 23 says this about these men. I've heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? You notice, what's the, what's the purpose of relying on a subjective authority? Because you can make it say whatever you want. Verse 27 of, of Jeremiah here who think to make my people forget my name and by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them. So they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. What an indictment. To be people who think to make God's people forget his name by their dreams that they tell one another. Who steal God's words from one another. Do you imagine? Them? That, that's the picture here. That's the picture of this relying on subjective authority is to take the word of God that is true in Christ, that, that he says is for you, and to say, no, 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 no. I've got a better word. What better word could there be? 
He says, he says, you steal my words from one another. You use your tongues and say, declares the Lord, when ultimately it is just declaring your own appetites and your own belly. Who tell them, my people, and lead them astray by their lies and their recklessness. And I recognize this morning that many of us, most of us, will not spend much time hearing from men and women who say, well, I had a dream and this is what you're supposed to do. And so I want to, I want to get us down to the, the, the root, the base of what these men and women are doing. What, it, what are these people doing? What, what in reality is it that they are, are trying to do? And the first thing that I think that this is doing when they're, when they're called dreamers, those who dream dreams, who rely on their dreams, is that they're sowing doubt. Are they not merely asking the same question that the serpent used to tempt Adam and Eve? Did God really say that? We live in a world that's full of these questions. We live in a world with people who claim to be Christians. You can just go find them on Twitter, on Facebook. You can probably find them in your family. You can find these people everywhere who say, does the Bible actually teach the Trinity? Did Jesus really ever claim to be God? Did God actually say marriage was between a man and a woman? Did Jesus say it? Is the sexual ethic of the Bible actually feasible today? Jesus never said anything about homosexuality or transgenderism. Is every single human being created in the image of God in the same way? In our past, we heard, well, what about those of a certain race? And today we hear, what about those still in the womb? What about those who are disabled? What about those of a certain age? We hear, if God is love, doesn't he want all types of love? We hear, if God loves you, doesn't he just want you to be happy? We hear, does the Bible actually teach a complementarity between the sexes? Does the Bible really say anything about how we should treat each other? Does God really care about holiness? God wouldn't judge you. And in doing so, they asked the very same question that the serpent asked Adam and Eve. Did God actually say? And not only do they sow doubt, but they redefine what is true. They redefine orthodoxy. They set themselves up as little Christ who say, well, you've heard it said, but I say to you. I just read this week, Andy Stanley said, well, I don't believe that the Bible says or scripture teaches or and the word of God commands are incorrect approaches, but they're ineffective approaches for post-Christian people. I hear it all the time. My God would never do that. He would never say that. The Jesus I believe in would never fill in the blank. And what this phrase reminds us, that they are dreamers of dreams, that they rely on their dreams, that they rely on a subjective authority, what it reminds us of is the reality. And I think Ligon Duncan said it the best. He says, there are many professing Christian teachers, preachers, and scholars. Notice, there are many professing Christian teachers, preachers, and scholars, people who would claim to be brothers, who see it as their business to disabuse you of the truthfulness of the Bible of the deity of Christ, of the claims of the gospel, of the absoluteness of the truth of God's word. And Jude is speaking precisely to those people. Relying on dreams. And so church, I would plead with you. Don't believe those who come to you saying, God told me. False teachers come claiming some special revelation, some new interpretation and Lawson says fairly often, as we looked at Jude, new typically means uh, heterodox or heresy. That the truth hasn't changed in 2,000 years. False teachers come claiming that new interpretation, that deeper understanding, but their tactics are the same as the serpent of old. They're sowing doubt. They're re- redefining the truth of God, and we ought not to buy it. This is why it matters. As we hear Brothers and sisters say things that we know are not true to say no. Here's what the Bible says. We have an authority. And it's not subjective. It doesn't change with the whims of our culture. It doesn't change with 
with every passing year. We have an authority that is not subjective, and it is the greatest authority. And so we ought not be a people who live by the lies of a lesser authority, who, who, who look at these men and women who say, well, I have a new word from the Lord. I know what the Bible says, but I have something different to say to you. We don't say to them, okay, let me hear it out. We say, no, get out. The truth matters. We have an authority. And that authority is more powerful and greater and more beautiful, as we've just sung about for 20 minutes, than anything else that we could lean on. What does the scripture say about itself? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Tell me what dream does that? What dream is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we might be complete, that we might be perfect, that we might be equipped for every single good work? What other authority is there that provides this? Jesus prays in John 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. We have in this book ultimate reality. And false teachers come in and they say, yeah, I know. I know what it says. But listen to this. I know what it says, but, but I have a, another vision. I know what it says, but, but that's not really what it means. Bodhi Bauckham has famously said, and I think it has helped me in many ways, very succinctly said, the Lord told me is no substitute for the Bible says. And we look at these false teachers, and that's the very thing that they're saying. I received a vision from the Lord in a dream. And when we hear that, we know one of two things. We know, number one, it's either irrelevant because it's going to say the same thing that we already have that was written by the actual God or that it's falsehood. So not only do these False teachers resist the warnings of God. Not only do they rely on subjective authority, but third, they ravage their bodies. And I chose ravage here on purpose. Because the sense here is that not only do they misuse their bodies, not only do they pollute their bodies, but they ruin their bodies. Look at verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh. Defile the flesh. Where does the pride of, of such subjective authority lead? And I don't want you to, to miss that. Imagine the pride of saying, yes, I know that God gave us a standard, that God gave us his word. I know that God has literally breathed out his word to us, but I have something different, something better. Notice the pride there. Where does that kind of pride lead? Well, it says that they defile the flesh. Literally, they pollute it. They sully it. They contaminate. This, they soil the flesh. It, it takes us back to verse 7. as Sodom and Gomorrah. It says about them, that, that which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, not just sexual immorality or promiscuity, but also pursued unnatural desire or per, pursued unnatural flesh. He says here that these men and women who are false teachers, defile the flesh. They ravage their bodies. 2 Peter 2 is in many ways a helpful parallel passage to this one as we, as we look at Jude, really as we look at the entirety of Jude. 2 Peter 2 is a helpful parallel passage. And in 2 Peter 2.10, it says, those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. Jude seems to connect the fact that there's a, an amount of pride that would say, my dream is more 
valuable than the word of God, or my dream helps interpret the word of God differently, or my dream is what we should listen to instead of the word of God, that there's a certain pride there that just shows an out-of-control nature. It shows someone who, who has no self-control, someone who has no sober-mindedness, who is, who is indulging in the lust of defiling passions. And I think in view here is, is definitely general sexual promiscuity of sexual immorality. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But I also think in view here is what he's saying is that not only is it sexual immorality, but it is, it is another category of sexual immorality, which is unnatural sexual, sexual desires. And what's interesting here is that these false teachers tell on themselves by these desires. What do I mean by that? What I, what I mean is that rather than run from the passions which the scriptures warn about, they embrace them. What does he say? He says they defile, uh, they defile the flesh. They ravage their bodies. What do I mean by this? 2 Corinthians 7.1 Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness and completion in the fear of God. And the false teacher says, no, my dream says something different. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And yet in their pride and in their folly, they say, no, not war. Not a war against my soul. 1 Corinthians 6, 15 and 16, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. And they say, no, 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 no. That's, that's not what he means. Or, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The false teachers know the truth. They've seen what happens to those who, who live in sexual promiscuity and unnatural sexual activity in verse 7. And, the, and then they say, yeah, but you know, our dreams tell us that that's not real. Not only that, rather than acknowledge sexual promiscuity as a thing of the past, they dive headlong into it. One of my, I love this verse in 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4.3 says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He says the time that is past is enough. We've, you, you've done enough of that. If you're in Christ, if you, if you belong to Jesus, if you're claiming that Jesus is Lord, then, then leave all that behind. That's not who you are anymore. That's who you were. And a false teacher comes in and says, no, no, we can be that. That's fine. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And these false teachers relax it again and they say, well, that's not what he means. Or finally, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 through do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And, and, and Paul there says with Peter, that's who you were. This is not what we celebrate. This is not who we are in Christ. That's who you were. And church, let me just be very clear. We ought not be surprised when men like this and women like this who have made their, their own selves an idol 
go into all kinds of sexual promiscuity. When they've replaced the authority of God with the authority of their own selves, we ought not be surprised when they, when they walk into all kinds of sexual immorality. We ought not be surprised that their idolatry fuels their sexual immorality. We see this in Romans chapter 1. That this is what happened when, when the people made an idol of themselves. What do they do? They go off into all manner of sexual immorality. And let me just say to you very clearly two exhortations to you about this. Beware of those who know all of the right words to say, but inwardly are controlled by their passions and their own lusts. Beware of those who have all of the correct answers, but are out of control, that lack a sober mind. Part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Sober-mindedness is a mark of the Spirit's work. Beware those who have all of the right words that live a life that lacks any control. False teachers defile the flesh. But not only that, and I, I want you to, to listen carefully because I, I do think this is, this is in view here. Beware those who would offer you freedom sexually that the Scriptures do not. Beware those who would offer you freedom sexually where the Scriptures do not. Schreiner writes this, and I think it's very helpful. Presumably, the opponents appealed to their dreams to say that their sexual freedom was from God himself, that they transcended moral norms. Judah's concerned because such defilement and impurity could spread like a contagion. Beware of those who offer freedom sexually where the scriptures do not. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that that when people begin to ask, did God really say? More often than not, they're, they're just tempting you into licentiousness, to worldliness. When they say, did God really say that this is his standard for sexuality? And they say, well, I mean, he said that, but that was thousands of years ago. The times have changed. Well, yeah, he said that, but I mean... I mean, how are you going to know if you're compatible with your future spouse unless you live together beforehand? Or how are you going to know what, what you actually think about sexuality without ever trying something? Do not believe the lie. Do not believe the one who would come to you and offer freedom where the Scriptures do not. Don't believe the lie of those who would call themselves gay Christians or adulterous Christians or fornicating Christians. While there is indeed a category for Christians struggling with sin, there is no universe. No universe. And I'll repeat it. There is no universe in which a Christian would be identified by his or her sin. And any effort to do so is rotten fruit from this tree. Not only, though, do these people... Resist the warnings of God, rely on subjective authority, and ravage the flesh, flesh. Number four, they reject God's authority. Uh, I was right. We're going to close after this point. They reject God's authority. Look at verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. 2 Peter 2, where our text says reject, 2 Peter 2.10 says that they despise authority, that they scorn it, they disregard it, they think nothing of it. And ultimately, right, all of these things are leading into one another. If you have an authority that you've set up for yourself, then it would make sense, it would follow, it would track that you would despise authority, that you would, that you would despise God's authority. Ligon Duncan, again, we live in a day, an age of license and antinomianism. People want God without rules, without responsibilities, without obligations. They want Christianity without commitment. They want the benefits of Christ and salvation without the cost of discipleship. They reject authority. But I want to look at this word authority because I think it matters what we, what we land on, what this word means. Notice that he doesn't say reject authorities, but he says reject authority. So it's singular. If he had said reject authorities, you might expect that he means, well, uh, the, the human institutions that God has set up 
as in the government and the church and all of these things. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say reject authorities, although I think that is in view, right? If you reject one authority, you're probably rejecting all the ones below it. But he doesn't say reject authorities as if he was talking about human institutions or, or angels or spiritual authorities, which some would argue for. He says they reject authority, one authority. And I would argue that what he's saying is merely another way of saying what he says in verse 4. That they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. When they reject authority, what they're doing is denying our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And I said at the beginning that false teachers don't walk in with a sign that says, hello, I'm a false teacher. They don't come in with a warning label. So how do we know a false teacher when we see one? Well, we know by their sinful actions. So I'm going to ask a few questions first. What is reality? Reality is that Jesus is Lord. No matter where you are, no matter what time it is, no matter what day it is, no matter what place in the world you are, no matter how you feel about that truth, the reality is, ultimate objective reality, is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? To me. What is reality? Ultimate reality, the truth that cannot be changed, that cannot be subjective, that cannot be wrong at one time or another, is that Jesus is Lord. And thus, the Christian's confession is to that Jesus is Lord. We believe the truth. We believe the truth that Jesus has revealed about himself, that he is Lord. Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Our confession this morning that we have gathered around is that Jesus is Lord. And what is the confession of the false teacher? The false teacher comes to you not confessing that Jesus is Lord but confessing that he or she has set himself, herself up as Lord. When they reject God's authority, what they're claiming is that they are the authority. And when they reject God's authority, the the amazing thing is they're not merely rejecting the tenets of Christianity. They're not just rejecting something that we can say, oh yeah, it's cool, we can disagree on this. They're rejecting reality. They're rejecting what is true for all times and at all places, that Jesus is, in fact, Lord. It's reminiscent to me of the man of lawlessness who, 2 Thessalonians 2 says, opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. False teachers walk into the church and by their actions say, I am Lord. My authority trumps that of Jesus's. I know what you've heard said, but I say this. And let me just say, as we, as we close and as we look at, at this reality that they reject God's authority, that they reject that He is Lord, false teachers make this through their actions and in all kinds of ways. A rejection of Christ's lordship leads into the very lack of sexual ethic presented in the phrase before. To look at, at the, the scriptures, to look at the testimony of history and say, I don't know, I'm going to go a different way, is to reject Christ's lordship. A rejection of Christ's lordship leads into all kinds of licentiousness. To say, well, well, if God, God didn't really say that. It doesn't really matter what God says. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to be setting myself up as Lord. I'm going to do the things that make me happy or what I want to be or what I want to do is, is ignoring and rejecting Christ as his lordship to say, I'm going to live the way that I want to live. But I think one way that we specifically see this in the church one way that we know and one, one safeguard that the Lord has in His grace given us is the fact that a rejection of the Lordship of Christ trickles down into rejection of the authorities that Christ has put in place. Christ has put authorities in place in your life. Each of us in the church, Christ has put the church in authority over us right? That there's brothers and sisters who have the ability and the command, the responsibility to, ability to say to you when you're in your sin, brother, repent. 
Sister, walk away from that. Christ is as Lord, has instituted his word as an authority over us. And so if if you're rejecting the lordship of Christ, you're going to reject what he clearly says in his word. False teachers rejecting the lordship of Christ reject not only his church and his word, they reject the elders that he has lovingly placed over them. They reject even the civil magistrate, which I think falls into that other view of this verse to say that they reject all kinds of authority. They reject husbands as leaders of the household. They reject fathers and mothers. They don't respond to church discipline. So the Lord has given us, thankfully, a way, as we look at this verse, a way to say, okay, who who are these? It would be those who, who would reject the lordship of Christ when a brother and sister ultimately, after going one to one and then, and then three to one and then before the whole church and begging you to repent and the, and the person says, no, I don't want to repent. It's a rejection of God's authority. It trickles down into a rejection of all the authorities that he's instituted. And let me say, just as a quick point of application, it's a weak gospel that does not change the heart. And these men and women who, who the Scripture says in verse 12 are hidden reefs at your love feast, these, these who would come in unannounced, these who would come in, as verse 4 says, creeping in unnoticed, these who would, who would be here and who would, who would set themselves up as authorities and not, and not trust the authority that God has placed over them and not subject themselves to this authority that God has given them, these who would sneak in, they do not believe the true gospel because it's a weak gospel that does not change the heart. And if the gospel has not taken root in your heart, it will, con- it will conform. If the gospel has taken root in your heart, it will conform you to the image of Christ. What does Paul say about the gospel in Romans 1? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What does he say in Galatians 2.20? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, we've already read it, but just for good measure. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We believe these things about the gospel, which helps us when we look out for false teachers, because if the gospel has taken root in your heart, it will conform you into the image of the Son. If the gospel is not conforming one into the image of Christ, then they have not believed. It's the state of false teachers. They want all of the trappings of Christ without Christ himself. They've said the words, they've walked through the motions, but their hearts have not changed. And they've made grace look cheap by the fact that they are saying that there's another authority that does not care about sin, that does not care about what what Christ has said in his word, and rather has set themselves up as the true Lord. Bonhoeffer called this cheap grace. And he said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. False teachers claim to be those recipients of grace, but they don't acknowledge the lordship of Christ. They don't repent. They don't obey. They don't acknowledge other authorities that Christ has put in place. Let me just say as we close this morning that I'm reminded of the verse in Hebrews chapter 6 where the writer of Hebrews says, though we speak in this way, I think in a similar way that I've spoken this morning, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And the question where all of this ends up is what kind of people does the gospel create? What kind of change has been wrought in our hearts? Because in reality, we too were people before Christ who had set ourselves up as Lord. 
We had decided that, that what I was going to do was what I wanted to do. And what made me happy was what I would do every day and every time. That in my sin, I rejected the truth of Christ, that I rejected the lordship of Jesus. And I said, I, I want what I want. I am the God of my life. I am the ruler of my existence. And yet Christ, by his blood, has formed a people who trust his authority. A people who are not cast headlong into sexual immorality. A people who understand the principalities around them, who believe the truth about God and Christ, and who proclaim with joy, not out, of, not out of compulsion, not because we're forced to, but with joy, that Jesus is Lord. And we agree with ultimate reality, with all the world and all the universe, in proclaiming together that He is Lord. And in that confession together, our end is not destruction. Our end is not nothingness. Our end is not payment for our own sins. Because the payment for our sins has been satisfied perfectly. Because our high priest sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, and our life never ends. He does not lead us to destruction, but he leads us to life and life eternal by his grace. And church, in Christ, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation, not merely a moment in time where we were saved from our sins, but a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. A salvation that is, is a firm salvation that cannot be stripped from us or taken from us but that will lead us into eternity where we see our Savior face to face and enjoy Him forever. Let's pray.